lot of things have gone on since last Sunday, haven't there? I mean, we had Michael Jackson die. We had Farrah Fawcett die. Uh, Ed McMahon die. We had the governor of South Carolina going to Argentina. Without repentance. That's justification. So I think this, uh, this man right now is on very, very uh, dangerous ground. And uh, we need to pray that God will touch this man's heart and break him like he did Pat. You know, and just break this man until he's weeping in uh, repentance because that's what he needs. You don't see him talking about too much about his wife and how he's ruined his children's lives. It's all about him. But his right now to continue to be governor. Well, yes, he has a right, a legal right to be governor. He was voted in. But he's a moral reprobate. And that's what he needs to be saying. And uh, so when we sin, we should never do it thinking that sin comes with impunity. Sin comes with consequences. And we see that in the Psalms. And if you'll take your Bible, let's turn to Psalm 7. Okay? Psalm 7. We've been through the first six Psalms. And today we come to the seventh Psalm, which is written by David. And when you get there, you'll notice that there's a title or a superscription. Now, your psalm may have two titles. One may be the one that was put in by the publisher. We're not looking at that. But you'll see another, what's called a superscription, that gives instructions uh, to the orchestra director of the temple, or the choir director, on how to put this psalm to music. And it usually gives us the context. And you'll see, my, I'm using a New King James, and mine says a meditation of David. Now, actually, that's a translation. The word doesn't say meditation. It's a Hebrew word, and some of your Bibles have the Hebrew word there. It's uh, shigai, Shigayon, I think it is. And uh, it is a word that's very vague, but it, it could mean lament. A lament. Uh, the root of that word means erratic. And most likely this is a psalm that David wants to be put to music that has this maybe erratic beat or erratic quality or an erratic motion uh, involved in this music because there's, a, there's this uh, discord in the psalm. He wants that reflected in the music. And then the superscription says, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. So we see that he mentions Cush and he mentions Benjamin. So these, if you want to know what the theme of this psalm is, it concerns the words of somebody from Cush, and then he relates it to the Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. There is only one place in the scriptures where those two words, Cush and Benjamin, are linked together in the life of King David. And I want to show those to you. Okay? So keep your finger here, and for background, we're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 18. 2 Samuel chapter 18. Now remember, 
he says that this psalm concerns the words of Cush, and then he has Benjamin. Okay? One place where those two words are found together in the life of King David. Now, when you get to 2 Samuel 18, this continues that historical event surrounding Absalom, David's 40-year-old son, who has turned against his father, King David, and is leading a coup against King David, trying to overthrow uh, his father's throne. Okay? So... <clears throat> Psalm 7 is going to deal with this once again. Now that's going to link Psalm 7 to Psalm 3, 4, and 5. Because remember when we saw 3, 4, and 5. Remember they were about Absalom, weren't they? Remember there was a evening psalm, 3, a morning psalm, 4, an evening psalm. All taking place in the midst of this coup to overthrow his government by his son Absalom. Uh, Psalm 7 also deals with this issue. Now here's the point. Psalm 7 takes place after Absalom is dead. Okay? David doesn't realize Absalom's dead. David is still in exile. He's still on the run. Uh, many of his own people have turned against him. They have sided with Absalom. They've sided with the people who are trying to overthrow his government. But Absalom now has died. And I want you to look at 2 Samuel chapter 18 and look down at verse 21. Now the word is going to be told to King David that Absalom's dead. So, verse 21. Then Joab, and this is King David's general, military general, said to the, look, Cushite, tell the king what you've seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and he ran. So what this Cushite is going to do is go tell the king that Absalom, his rebellious son, is dead. Now what's Psalm 7 about? Words concerning Cush. What Cush had to say. Okay? Now remember, David doesn't know that his son's dead yet. He doesn't know that the leader of the rebellion is gone. He, uh, he's still on the run himself. Okay? So I'm going to skip down to verse 31. Just then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, There's good news, my lord, the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you, meaning in the coup. And the king said to the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? He wanted to know about his son. So the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you to do harm be like that young man. In other words, he's dead. And we hope the rest of that army that's against you is dead. Then the king was deeply moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, 
My son Absalom. My son. My son Absalom. If only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom. My son. My son. This is the word associated with Cush. Okay? Now, David at this point goes into deep depression. Now, the Cush... I think he's bringing David good news. Well, it's good news that the rebellion failed, but it's not good news for David that his son died. And David goes into a state of mourning, and this, and he just goes into a complete funk. And this sends a contradictory message out to the nation. Okay? And uh, look what happens. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. Then Joab, that was his general, was told, Behold, the king's weeping, and he's mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning. Instead of celebration, it was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day. And as the people who are ashamed steal away when they flee into battle, but the king covered his face. And the king cried out with a loud voice, My son Absalom! Oh Absalom, my son, my son! And then Joab came into the house to the king and he said, Today you've disgraced your servants, who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and your daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your <coughs> concubines, in that you love your enemies and you hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For the day I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. Now therefore arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And all the evil and it will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth unto now. And then the king arose and sat in the gate. And they told all the people, saying, The king, there is the king, he's sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king, for everyone in Israel has fled to his tent. Now, what we have happening here is that when David hears that Absalom has been killed and that battle in a sense has been won instead of rejoicing and say thank you my generals thank you my army thank you for all you've done that you put your life on the line to save the kingdom guess what he does he starts mourning he says you're mourning for the enemy it looks like you're on their side rather than you should be thanking the people who put their life on the line for it. They're getting a contradictory message. You better get up and you better get out of there and start thanking them. So he goes in the gate and as everybody comes out, he starts thanking them that they fought this war for him. Okay? Now look over chapter 20. Still with me? This is all the background. Once we get to Psalms, we can move real fast once we understand the background. Okay? If you're looking at your watch and say, we're going to be finished. We're going to be finished. Now look at Psalm 20, or 2 Samuel chapter 20. So what we have is that his supporters 
come to his aid. They support him. He's gone out and he's thanked them. They're sticking around. And by the way, even some of the people who rebelled with him and sided with Absalom have now returned and said, King, forgive us. We made a mistake. We went to the wrong side. He said, Ah, oh, come on in. He accepted them back. But all is still not well. Okay? Not well. Because there are some people who still stand opposed to the king. That's what you see in chapter 20. And there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Shemna, the son of Vickery. A Benjamite. Benjamite. A Benjamite. Now there's Benjamin. And he blew a trumpet and he said, We have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents. So every man of Israel deserted David and they followed Shebna, the son of Bichri. So, things are not over for King David because while most people have now thrown their support behind him, there's still a rebel group following this guy from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, named Shebna. And this guy is going to overthrow King David or lose his own life. He's sort of become the new general of the, the, of the rebellion. Does that make sense to you? Now look at chapter 20 and verse 6. Chapter 20, verse 6. And David said to Abishai, Now Shebna, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. So, guess what? The coup is not over. <clears throat> there is another group that wants to overthrow King David. So, they just have a new leader, and this man and his group is out to get King David and overthrow the government. Now, Psalm 7 is written in that context. Okay, so go back to Psalm 7. And Psalm 7 is a prayer. Okay? And this prayer comes in four parts. And you'll see how clearly each part begins. Look at part one of the prayer. Psalm 7 and verse 1. O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute, or more literally, who pursue me. Save me from those who persecute or pursue me and deliver me lest they tear me like a lion rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. Uh, David realizes that he still has problems and uh, his cry is to the Lord to do one thing, save me. Notice it says in verse 1, save me and then at the end of verse 1, deliver me. They mean exactly the same thing. Deliver me from what? For my enemies who are out to devour me. It shows you that these people are very uh, angry at David and they're not going to stop until they've overthrown his government. And David says, Lord, I'm putting my trust in you because if you don't do it, they're going to succeed. So you're my only hope. Just as he trusted God to deliver him from Absalom, he has to trust him to deliver him from this other gentleman. Now part two of the prayer. Look at verse three. Notice how it opens. Oh, Lord, my God. How did part one of the prayer open? Up in verse one. 
Lord my God. You see that? That phrase, O oh Lord. So it shows you this is the second part. It's followed by several ifs. Okay? Several ifs. Look what it says. O oh Lord my God. If I have done this, done what? If there's iniquity in my hand, uh, if I have repaid evil to him who is at peace with me, or, another if understood, if I have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to earth and my honor to the dust. So, now what David is saying is this. He says, now Lord, I'm trusting you to take care of me and protect me from these people. But if, if, I'm, if I've done anything wrong, if there's iniquity, if I've repaid evil to him who's at peace with me and all these kind of, well then, of course, allow me to be defeated. Uh, now, David isn't saying that he has iniquity. He's not saying that he's done any of these things. In fact, this is a claim of innocence. Okay, This is an if-then argument. If I've done this, then allow this to happen. But I haven't done that. That's what David's saying. It's like you saying. Um, we've all said something like this. Uh, you know, God is my witness. I'm telling you the truth. And if I'm, if I'm, if I'm not telling the truth, may he... Write me down. Well, but that doesn't mean that you're not telling the truth. When you say, if I'm not telling the truth, let him strike me dead, it means you are telling the truth, and therefore he won't strike you dead. See? This is David's claim of innocence. He is innocent of all these things. Now, he's not sinless. <laughs> he's not sinless. But guess what? He's innocent of causing trouble in the kingdom. This is a coup to overthrow David, and he is not responsible for it. He's, he's innocent of all that. Now he talks about response. It's very interesting in verse 4. He says, if I have repaid evil to him who is at peace with me, if I've done this. Uh, when I saw that, I was thinking about the way we respond to people. And I thought there are different ways that we can respond to situations. If we respond with evil toward a person who does good, say Don's my friend, he does something good, and then guess what I do? I turn around and I do something evil to him. Malicious. That's returning evil for good. That's demonic. That's a demonic response. That's an evil response. You've heard people say, that's an evil person. That's what an evil person is defined as. A person who does evil towards someone who's good. Someone who's a friend toward them. That's one kind of response we can have. Another kind of response is when we return evil for evil. He does something bad to me, I'm going to do something bad to him. That's an eye for an eye. That's a human response. That's, that's how we're made. But there's another way I think Christ wants us to respond. And that's return good for evil. That's a divine response. Now, David wasn't mad at his son Absalom in the sense that he wanted to do him any harm, did he? In fact, when he discovered his son Absalom died, he was brokenhearted over that. See, David has innocent hands. He wasn't malicious toward his son, although his son was malicious toward him. 
And now here's the second coup in the sense starting. And David says, if I've done anything wrong, I deserve to be defeated. But Lord, I haven't. And he gives a progression here. It's very interesting. If you notice those verbs, which is very interesting. He says, if I've done this, look at verse 5. Number one, let the enemy pursue me. There's verb number one. Let him pursue me. Look at verb number two. Overtake me. Number three, trample me. Number four, lay my honor in the dust. You see, there's a progression. Pursue. <clears throat> Let him have me on the run. Look at the next one. Overtake me. May I get captured. Not only on the run, now I get captured. Number three, trample me. That means put me underfoot. That means make me submit. I'll, maybe I'll have to submit, see, underfoot. And then he says this, finally, lay my honor in the dust. Humiliate me. He said, if I've done anything wrong, this is what I deserve. I deserve to be on the run. I deserve to be captured. I deserve to be put under foot, trampled. And I deserve to be humiliated in front of all my people. He said, but I haven't done any of that. I haven't done any of that. Okay? Now, part three of the prayer. Part three. Look at verse six. Look how to arise, O Lord. You see the O Lord there? That's how you know that this is the third part of the prayer. We have the O Lord in verse 1, part 1. O Lord in verse 3, part 2. O Lord in verse 6, part 3 of the prayer. And what David's doing here, he's praying for divine justice. And he says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. And so he calls upon the Lord to handle this situation for him. Uh, notice that David's always trusting the Lord. This is why he's a man after God's own heart. Doesn't trust himself. He just trusts the Lord. And then he says this. Arise. Notice that's the second rise. Beginning of verse 6, arise. Second rise. Arise for me to the judgment you have commanded. Uh, he says, now Lord, you have to arise and defend me because I've entered into a covenant with you. You're supposed to be faithful to your covenant. Arise to me. You've said that you're going to curse those who do bad. Look, rise and do that. Judge them. You said you're going to bless those who honor you. Arise and do that. See? So this arise is directed in two different ways. Arise in your anger against my enemies. Arise up for me to the judgment that you've commanded. Now look at verse 7. So the congregation of the peoples shall, shall surround you. Lord, that's what, that's what we want. That's my goal, is that when you do that, and the enemies are defeated, the people will surround you. Well, where was God living? He lives in a temple. Lord, that the people will come to Jerusalem and they'll surround you. They'll be pouring into Jerusalem. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. Rise up. That's what he's saying. In all your power. And then he said this. The Lord shall judge the peoples. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. Now look at this. He says, O Lord, judge me. Look at me. Look at my heart. Discern whether I am innocent or whether I'm guilty. That's what he's asking God to do. Now, in the middle of verse 8, we have sort of the fourth part of this prayer where he says, and I read that a little, little ahead where he says, 
Judge me, O Lord. Look at that, right in the middle of verse 8. You see the word, O Lord, there? Fourth time it's used. This is the fourth part of the prayer. And this is going to be the basis of God's judgment. Judge me, O Lord, on what basis? Look at this. According to my righteousness. See, David knows that he's righteous. He didn't do anything wrong. Uh, judge me according to my integrity within me. You see that? Within me. Oh, let the wicked come to an end. That's the that's Shevna in his group. But Lord, establish the just. So he's asking for two things. He's asking that the wicked be judged and defeated. And he's asking that the righteous, including himself, be vindicated. Be established. Not lose the government. Hold on to the government. Be established. See? Don't lose what they've got. So we have a, a comparison here between the wicked on one hand whom God he asked God to judge and the righteous on the other hand who he asked God to vindicate. Okay? Now look at the rest of verse 9. <clears throat> For the righteous God tests the heart and minds. Look at that. The righteous God tests the heart's and minds. This is how God determines how He's going to deal with you. <clears throat> whether you deserve judgment, whether you deserve vindication. He puts you to a test. And guess what He tests? Your inner being. Not what you say with your mouth. <coughs> he looks right into you. Right into your heart. Right into your mind. He looks what, into what you're thinking. He looks at your schemes. He looks at your conniving. He looks at your thoughts. And then he looks at your intent. That your thoughts, that's your mind, and your heart, your intents, and your motives. What are you trying to accomplish? And he is able to look at you. Where man looks on the outward, God looks upon the heart, and he looks at every one of our hearts, and he knows exactly what we're thinking about every situation and what underlies that thinking. Why we think the way we do. And that's why when God makes a decision between judging and vindication or blessing and cursing, his judgment is always correct. Because he looks into the heart. Does that make sense? He looks into the secret place. The word heart there really is liver. But, you know, in modern day English, it wouldn't sound good. Lord, look into their liver. <laughs> That's what fortune tellers used to do, see, in Bible times. They would get the entrails of an animal or something, and they would look at the liver, and then they would tell fortunes. And what it basically means is just as a fortune teller can look at your inner thoughts, look at your liver and determine your thoughts and your motives, uh, so God can. Uh, but God's not a fortune teller. Uh, God does things right. Okay. Now, David's going to rest his case. Look at verse 10. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. But he knows God's going to save him because he is upright in heart. David knows this. He knows he's innocent. And this is a great statement. This is a statement that we should all write in our Bibles. God saves the upright in heart. So we should be making sure that we are upright in heart. And then look what he says. 
God is a just judge. All the time, God, just judge. That's what He is. And God is angry with the wicked every day. Now look at that. Since God is just, and He can see the heart, and He sees the heart of the wicked, guess what He is? He's angry with the wicked. Every day. That's continuously. See, this is why the theology, ah, God's just happy with everybody and loves everybody. No, God's angry all the time with certain people. See? And He's a just judge. So His anger is not just His attitude, it's going to result in His action. So, as one person said, sinners may have feast days, but they have no safe days. Just think about that. The wicked may have feast days, but they have no safe days. Because God's always angry at them. It's like the sword of the Mopolis hanging over them, and it could fall anytime God wants it. And the only response that God expects from a sinner is to repent. That's the only thing that will spare the judgment. And that's exactly what he says in verse 12. If he does not turn back. Look at that. If the sinner doesn't turn back, if the sinner doesn't repent, then look what God will do. He will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and he makes it ready. Look at that language. God gets out his whetstone and he sharpens that sword. He gets that string tight so that when he lets that arrow go, it's deadly. It's accurate. It's tight and it's accurate and it's deadly. Notice that. He bends his bow to make it ready. He also prepares for himself the instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. So although the evil person is having a feast day, and it looks like they're getting away with all their evil, and God's sort of closing his eyes to it, in reality, what God's doing at that time is He's sharpening His sword. <laughs> Not letting you get ready with anything. He's sharpening His sword. He's getting His bow tight. He's getting His instruments of death ready. And in this case, the language that He uses, swords and bows, He's describing weapons of battle. And the way He's going to defeat Shebna and judge Shebna is by defeating Shebna in battle. And uh, when I tell you how Shebna gets defeated, it's very interesting. So you still with me? Now he's going to describe this full cycle of sin. How sin starts off, how it's conceived, and how it sort of has a lifespan. 
Uh, he's going to show you the lifespan of sin, the full cycle of sin, okay? the consequences of sin, how it's birthed, how it re what its results are. Now look at this. Look at verse 14. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble, and he brings forth falsehood. Now David here is describing this, what I would call the cycle of sin. It has a beginning. Notice in that verse 14, you see the word conceived. Do you see that? Uh, sin is conceived. There's conception. <clears throat> it's conceived. It says he conceives trouble. Some of your translations might say pain. Anybody's translation say pain? Describing uh, what he's doing. He's, he conceives evil. Evil's conceived. It's very painful. Okay? And uh, then you see the words bring forth. Brings forth iniquity, verse 14. Look at this. Brings forth falsehood at the end of verse 14. Brings forth his birth. Evil is conceived, and then guess what it is? Birth. Just like you have a baby. He's describing, in a sense, reproduction. He's describing this lifestyle. And so the evil person brings forth, gives birth to what? Birth to iniquity and falsehood. Iniquity and falsehood. You, who's, who's the father of this evil? This is, if he gives birth, that's David's portraying these evil people as in female language. Metaphorically, they're female. Not literally female. Metaphorically, they conceive, like a woman conceives. And she gives birth. Who's the father of these lies? Anybody know? Satan. <laughs> He's the father of all lies. He's the one that puts these things, these seeds, in their heart. So, the sinner conceives. I want to call that the fertility of sin. The fertility of sin. They conceive. They're fertile. The sinner gives birth to the delivery of sin. Look at that. Sin is delivered. See? And... David's enemies are aiming their wickedness and their falsehoods toward him. He's the recipient of this. He's the target of their evil doing. But guess what? They're the target of God's judgment. His sword's pointing toward them. Hey, they think they've got David in their targets. God's got them in their targets. Now look at verse 15. He made a pit. And dug it out. And has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head. Now you saw trouble up in verse 14. Trouble was conceived, wasn't it? Trouble was birthed. Trouble and evil are the bad person's children. They're parents of evil. And guess what? Now look what it says here. Verse 18, his trouble shall return to his own head, and his violent dealings shall come down on his own crown, which means basically the same thing, the crown of your head. And so there's a sense in which they conceive evil, they give birth to evil, and then evil, this trouble, turns on them. It's like their own children turn on them, and their own children kill them. That's what he's describing here. David had a son named Absalom. Guess what Absalom did? Turned on David. 
They've got children. It's called iniquity. It's called evil. It's called lies. It's called falsehood that they're using against David. They're aiming at David. But guess what? It's turning right around. It's turning on them. And they're going to become the victims of their own evil, which they conceived and which they've given birth to. Uh, it's like a, a, a hunter that builds a trap for a wild animal to catch the animal, but he ends up falling into his own trap. The trap that was meant for someone else becomes the trap that ensnares him. And this is what's going to happen to Shebna. This is what's going to happen to those that have rebelled against King David and against the nation and are trying to overthrow the nation. This is what we call in literature poetic justice. <laughs> you set a trap, and guess what? It uh, ends up that you, you get entrapped. And without going back to 2 Samuel, let me tell you what Shebna does. He ends up on the run, and he ends up in this city. I think the city's called Abel, which is very interesting. <laughs> Probably has a lot of significance. And uh, <clears throat> David's armies, led by Joab, are surrounding it. And an old lady comes out, and she says, Now, nah, General, you don't want to invade the city. Now, Shebna has gone into that city because that city has been a place where evil people have run for centuries and have found safety. And she says, now you don't want to invade the city and end up killing women and children. He thinks he's safe in here. We'll take care of him for you. Job says, okay, and guess what? A few minutes later, his head comes flying over the wall. <laughs> the place where he went and he thought was going to be safe, he ended up being his trap. And uh, I don't know if David knows that. I guess he knows it when he writes the psalm because he writes the psalm probably years later and he's telling the story. And so that's what happens to Shev. And then it ends with this. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, David says. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. He gives thanksgiving that the Lord is going to judge justly, he's going to deliver the righteous, and he's going to curse those people who are unfaithful. Now, what do we learn from here? Let's give you a lesson or two. I'll leave, I've really run over, and I'm sorry about that. But there were a couple things I wanted to say at the beginning. Now, um, one thing is we learn how to respond when we're wrongly or falsely accused. David was falsely accused. He was a good guy for the most part. Uh, how do you respond when you're falsely accused? David tells you how you respond. You don't respond with evil toward evil. You respond with good toward evil. You put your trust in the Lord. You ask Him to get you out of the situation. Okay? Second of all, I think we've made the point is that God vindicates the faithful. I mean, that's that's an obvious, um, an obvious point. But I want to make another point. There's one thing that you discover in this passage that God can't do. Is there anything that God can't do? I'll tell you what God can't do. God cannot forgive an unrepentant God cannot forgive an unrepentant sinner. That's the one thing that God can't do. To be forgiven, he needs to see a humble heart. He needs to see a turning back. The message of judgment is not a message of condemnation. Believe it or not. When the prophets preach judgment, they're not preaching condemnation. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, did he? But the world through him might be saved. Look, 
The message of the prophet, no matter how harsh that message sounds, is not a message of condemnation. It's a message of hope. It's a message that it's a call to repent. It's a call of mercy. It's a call of, of offering God's mercy to anyone who hears the condemnation message and then repents. They are guaranteed of forgiveness. Now, this psalm is messianic in the sense that God, that Jesus Christ is God's ultimate king. God has anointed Jesus as king. God has made him the reigning Lord over the universe. And uh, he represents God's will and God's uh, government to us. And just as David did when he was on earth. And we can either stand and give our allegiance to Christ as our king and be vindicated at the end, even though everybody thinks that we're crazy when we do that. Or we can turn away and say, we're not giving any allegiance to this man. We won't have this man ruling over us. And in that case, then we are the recipients of judgment. But the hope of salvation is always there because the opportunity for repentance is always there until you take your last breath. Next week, we'll look at Psalm 8, one of the best great psalms in the of the Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend together looking at the psalms. This has been a good series for us. It's opened our eyes to some history. We've been able to see how to interpret Scripture in light of its context, which has been good for us. But Lord, help us to take some of these practical lessons home with us. Help to realize that you honor faith. Help us to realize that you look upon the inner person. Help us to realize that you are an accurate judge. Help us to realize, Lord, that there's always mercy at your throne. There's a mercy seat. And the mercy is available to all of us to humble ourselves before you. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. In Jesus' name.